How about we uh, read our passage and dive into the message today? So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17. And as a symbol of honor, can we stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Lord, we come before you today as your people ready to hear from you, anticipating, God, that you desire to meet with us today, Lord. You are a good father. You are our father. And we need you. So Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to learn. Help us to experience you. And help us to come to the same realization that Peter came to. I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Try to, try to fix this real quick. You, know, you got me? One more thing. Not enough room, huh? Too much lag. See, there we go. There we go. All right. So as a church, we've been praying and processing the idea of a liturgical lifestyle. We've been praying and processing this idea of, of living and embracing a liturgical lifestyle. Liturgy is simply a bridge between heaven and earth. It is an active participation in the divine life. Liturgy is a way that we participate in the divine life here and now. Liturgy is how we participate in our faith by engaging spiritual reality with our physical beings and actions. Liturgy is the process in which we unpeel the orange to get to the fruit. And what happens once we eat the fruit, right? Like once you peel the orange and you get to the fruit, we're compelled by our enjoyment to plant the leftover seeds back into the ground so that more may grow. And we're left with the means to do so. And of course, that's a metaphor, but metaphors are helpful and liturgies are helpful as well. This is why we've decided to form a liturgy for our church and move us in the direction of a liturgical 
lifestyle. We want you to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And we want the world around us to know our God. We want to equip you with the means to encounter God in the, in the physical reality of the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis. The purpose of the series that we're in, the purpose of this series, is to give us a primer into the liturgy so that we're more prepared as we develop and roll this out, both on Sundays in the, in the forms of discipleship that we subscribe to, and how we live and move as a church. And so there are five movements that we'll be organizing around that move us from simply seeing the orange, right, to taking the orange, to to peeling the orange, to, to eating the orange, and to planting the seeds back into the ground. Last week, Pastor Devin talked about the first movement, which is facing God. This idea of standing before the the God of the universe and facing him. Until you encounter the living God, your response to God will never match what is required of you. And your experience will always lack. We're never going to, we're never going to respond to God accordingly unless we actually encounter God for who he is. Until you encounter the living God, your your response to God will never be according to who God is. Has anybody ever been to the Niagara Falls? Has anybody, right? If, If you've never stood at the edge of the Niagara Falls, you'll never respect its glory. Like until you stand on the edge of the Niagara Falls, mind the ghetto Reno-looking place that's behind it, right? If you've been there, right? But like if you stand at the edge, until you stand at the edge of the Niagara Falls, you'll never respect it for its glory. It it, it has a roar that can't be heard in pictures, right? You can look at the pictures, you can see its magnificence, but until you hear the roar up front, you'll never respect its glory. It has a mist that can't be felt Unless you're there, unless you're standing at the edge of it and you feel the mist and hear the roar, you'll never respect the glory of the Niagara Falls. And similarly, until you stand before the God of the universe, until you face God, you'll never respond to him as needed. This week, we're going to talk about the second movement, which is embracing God. So if the first movement is to face God, the second movement is to embrace God. Taking this illustration of an orange again, right? Maybe I just had some oranges sitting on the counter. I don't know. But you can look at the orange tree from a distance, but unless you embrace the orange, you'll only look, you'll only know what it looks like from afar, and that's all it will ever be to you. It will just be an image. You can smell what it smells like, but if you never embrace it, you'll never actually get to taste of its fruit. 
And truthfully, that sums up a lot of people's life with God. They observe from afar. They even hang out with people who are participating and enjoying a life with God. But they never embrace God. They never take up their faith and experience all that God has for them. Maybe that's you today. But friends, unless you embrace God, unless you don't just observe God from a distance, but unless you embrace God and take up your faith, there is no hope for you in the Christian life or the life after. Imagine walking through an orange grove at harvest and never getting to taste the oranges. Many people will come and go, live and die, while walking through orchards of God's goodness while never tasting the fruit. And these same people will have the nerve to accuse God. And yet, they were surrounded by God's goodness their entire lives. I hope that's not you today. Others are in the midst of the orchard wondering what to do. Friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is in fact what Peter did in the passage we read earlier. Peter embraced God. Peter didn't just observe God from a distance. He didn't just sit and speculate about the things of God and who God was. Peter didn't just philosophize. He didn't stay in his mind. God wasn't some abstract reality that Peter sat and pondered. Peter embraced God. And Peter's example is a pattern for us to follow. And if that is the case, we need to understand the significance of Peter's response to Jesus when Jesus probed his disciples, asking them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Here's what I picture when I think of the question. When I think of Jesus sitting with his disciples and asking them, who do you say I am? I picture Jesus and his disciples driving down the 405. I picture Jesus on the 405, maybe in traffic hour, after a few significant times in Jesus' ministry where he did remarkable and miraculous things in front of them. He just walked on water. Imagine that, right? Like, imagine that. Yesterday, I went surfing in Ventura, and it was, it was like big out there. It was super fun, though. Me and Vince, we go surfing every Saturday, right? We kick it together, go surfing. And we're out there surfing, and there was this group of people that had all these kids. I think, I think it was called like surf therapy or something. And, they, and, it's, and it said a walk on water, right? And they, their little board said a walk on water. And I was reading them. I was like, a walk on water. Like, we want to walk on water, right? Like, imagine this. Like, Jesus walked on water. What, did, what were they thinking when this dude just starts walking on water? They just witnessed this. He healed tons of people at Gennesaret. They're watching him heal. He fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. That's insane. 
He healed the Canaanite girl in Tyre and more people in Decapolis. Like, like they just watched Jesus do all kinds of crazy stuff. Essentially, Jesus just left the Santa Monica Pier where tons of people were healed. And they sat on the beach where he taught them and fed them all from like a broke down taco cart. Anybody experience that? <clears throat> the entire time that this is going on, while Jesus is healing people, walking on water, feeding people, the religious leaders are, are right there next to him, poking at him, poking at him, poking at him, trying to discredit him, accusing him, attempting to frustrate his ministry. And, and just even, uh, just a little side note on that. Consider the nature of this deception there. Those who claim to represent God can't even recognize God when he shows up. Instead, God is disrupting what they have going on and they hate him for it. Imagine that. There's people in our midst who are like that as well. So at this point, the earthly ministry of Jesus, is, it's rounding third base. It's about to come to a close in a way that no one expected. And Jesus decides it's time to pull over and have a little conversation. He's doing all these miracles. He's healing people. The religious leaders are coming after him, trying to frustrate his, 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 his ministry. And so he's driving on the 405, right? And he exits on Wilshire. He makes a left on Gailey. He pulls a right on the cot, right? And he stops in front of this space called Upside Down. The coffee shop. Mm. <laughs> and he says, he says, fellas, I think it's time we have a conversation. I don't want you to let them dudes get in your head. Watch out for them. When they speak, they speak foolishness that show, throws shade and, and casts doubt on everything. Like yeast or like baking powder in a loaf of bread. Even a little bit of their teaching will have an effect on you. He's saying, I want you to not be around these people who are constantly throwing doubt and throwing shade on what I'm doing in your midst. Maybe that's a word for us too. He says their teaching will have an effect on everyone. It'll have an effect on you no matter what you do. The religious leaders don't recognize Jesus. They're far from God and Jesus wants none of this for his disciples. So sitting in, in the car in front of Upside Down, Jesus wants to be sure that his disciples understand and know exactly who he is and why he has come. So he asks them, who do men say that I am? They say Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. And see, what they're doing is they begin to draw on the significance of his ministry and note how he's experienced by others. They're like, we, everybody knows that you're somebody. Like we don't, they don't really necessarily know who you are, but yeah, like people are starting to figure this thing out. They know that you're, you, you must be either Elijah or one of the prophets. Like you're here to do something significant, right? Jesus is drawing them out, right? How many of you are new? Raise your hand. He's drawing them out. 
Right? There's a way to draw people out to get, a, to get an answer. Right? He draws them out and then he asks them this. But who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And I wonder. I don't know what direction you came from today when you pulled up on Lacan. But I wonder if that question would sit with us today. If Jesus was standing here in your midst next to you, and he said, but who do you say that I am? I wonder what your answer would be. Peter's response patterns what it means to embrace Jesus today. Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Jesus confirms this. And he promises to build his church on, may I argue, Peter's embrace. Not just Peter's confession, but Peter's embrace of Jesus as who he knows him to be. Here's why this is significant. Peter doesn't just have the right words to say. Peter's testimony isn't similar to a testimony that's given in court. I don't know about you. Maybe you've never been in court, but I've been in court where I'm sitting on a defendant's stand and they're pointing like, that's the guy. <laughs> Peter's testimony is not similar to a testimony given in court where a witness identifies a defendant. Peter's not just saying, I know who you are because I saw your ID. Instead, Peter is drawing on centuries upon centuries of promise and hope. Peter's drawing on, on promises that are thousands of years in the making. I can just see Peter's eyes just, just spinning like he's tripping out. Like Jesus is like, who are you? And in that, who do you think I am? And in that moment, Peter's just like, I know who you are. Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, as the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God, and the king who will rule the universe for all of eternity. When Peter says this, that is who he's identifying Jesus as. Since the days of Moses, there was a promise of one who would come as a mediator between God and man, another deliverer. One who would free the captives and bring justice to the earth. Peter knows what injustice is like. He's seen it. Peter knows this idea of, he knows what captivity is. He knows this. He said, they celebrate each year these different festivals, remembering the time when God delivered them from captivity. And he's like, I know there's somebody who's going to come who's going to deliver all the world from captivity. That's the Messiah, the one we're waiting for. He identifies Jesus as the one who was preached throughout all of history to do right by those who were broken hearted. He's the long awaited Christ who would strengthen the weary faith of the weak. Peter identifies Jesus as, as the long awaited Christ 
in the order of Melchizedek, who would be both priest and king. When he says this, he's, he, he's, like, he's recognizing, like, wait, you're the one who's going to mediate between us and God, but you're also the one who's going to rule the earth forever. Jesus is the awaited one. He's the liberator and the one who brings hope to the world. And friends, Peter doesn't merely identify Jesus. He confesses Jesus and embraces him for who he is. The significance of, of Peter's testimony is not that Peter's able to say, I know who you are. You're that guy who's the Christ. He's saying, you're the king of the universe. Lord, I follow you. When you look at the example of his life, Peter wasn't a perfect man, but Jesus was indeed his king. Is Jesus your king? Here's the line in the sand. This is the line in the sand. You can believe in God all you want. Even the demons believe in God. You can believe in God all you want. You can know a bunch of Christians. You could like download, you like you might have downloaded the Jesus is King album from Kanye and celebrated. Like you might know, like you might know, wow, 1999 even. Like it doesn't even matter. Like you can believe in God, but unless you embrace God, there is no hope for you. Have you embraced God? Consider the miserable misery of not embracing God. The world is unfair. People die who should live and people live who should die. The wicked get what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. One generation works hard and grows wealth while the next generation squanders it away. None of it makes any sense. No matter how hard you labor, all of your labor is wasting away. We live in, a, in, a, in an unjust world where some dude gets pissed off at his wife and runs over someone else's wife in his truck in a moment of rage. It's not this the world that we live in? And yet Peter says, you are the Christ. This means that the liberator has come. This means that the promise of renewal, the promise of redemption, the promise of restoration, the promise of hope has arrived. This means that while things don't make sense here and now, there is a king who has come to make new all things, even when they don't make sense. Friends, Jesus is the Christ. And if you embrace Jesus, there is hope for you. Caleb and I processed this passage together this week. And we were praying and preparing, a few, and as we were praying and preparing, a few things came to mind as to why embracing Jesus might be difficult for some of us. 
during our time of prayer and, and preparation, they were doing construction next door on the building right next to us. And for the entire time we were preparing, they had a chipping gun. We were chipping away at the concrete on the other side of the wall, chiseling it down to some form of perfection that we don't understand. So I'm talking about like three hours just, right? It was frustrating. It was annoying. It was, it was distracting. It made it almost impossible to think. But it did bring to mind a common struggle for us. Sometimes we don't embrace God because we're mad at the chipping that happens in our life. Maybe we live in a construction zone and chipping is all that we hear. Maybe our entire life, from the moment we were born to the moment we die, it's been chaos. Maybe we live in a zone where nothing, everything around us just seems to be chipping away at us and we're exhausted. Perhaps some person took a chipping gun to your life and used it to destroy you. Maybe you've sat here and just experienced, maybe over this last week even, maybe, maybe your life has just been systematically and strategically chipped away and you're exhausted and feel like there's nothing left. Perhaps the chipping gun has been in the hands of God. Has your life ever taken a turn that you didn't expect? Have things happened in your life that you just weren't prepared for or, or you just didn't, you were completely opposed to happening? Maybe you didn't get into the school that you wanted to get into. That you've applied to time and time after again. Maybe you're, you're forced to move schools. Maybe you have to make a career change. Maybe you're 10 years into the midst of your career and things just hit a fan and, and, and it's, it's over. And something different has to happen. Maybe you're craving for purpose and so you pick up a cause and you find out everyone else isn't as excited as you are. Maybe the cause is, is taken away from you and there's no more purpose left in your life and you feel completely angry about it. Some of you have been waiting for a spouse, longing to get married and have a family, and it still hasn't come, and it burns inside. Perhaps your life has been a series of disappointments, and you're weary, defeated, and possibly bitter. Could that be you today? Maybe this is why the religious leaders couldn't recognize Jesus. Sometimes we read these passages and we just start throwing daggers at people and we don't actually sit in their situation like, I wonder what was going on. Like, what got them to this place? Like, like if you're here today and you've been around the church or, or you've experienced and you just, you just haven't embraced Jesus, there's something that brought you to that point. And none of us are better than you. And we're not better than these religious leaders. And so sometimes we just sit and wonder, like, what were they going through? Perhaps they were mad at the chisel and assumed that the Messiah would never come. Maybe they were like, that dude ain't never going to come. 
Like the Messiah, and they started, they started reinterpreting their stories. They started reinterpreting the promises. They didn't, they're like, dude ain't never going to come. There's no Messiah. Maybe they lost hope. Maybe they were just tired of, the, of, 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 maybe these ones were like, man, look, Rome is over us. Like, I'm tired of playing the games. Maybe their parents forgot to pass on the faith. Like, you know, that's something that we actually are called to do. Like, my job as a parent, and, and some of you who are parents, and if you're going to have kids, like, your job is to pass on the faith. Like, it's your job to teach your children how to walk by faith. It's not your job to teach your kids how to be perfect. It's your job to teach your kids how to follow Jesus. And that was actually commanded of the Israelites early on. They were called to teach their children, teach it to your children, remind them of these stories, celebrate these different festivals to bring to remembrance what your God has done for you. Maybe their parents forgot to pass on the faith, and so they never learned how to walk by faith. But instead, they gave in to their pain and resorted to try to control their lives. And so these religious systems just became a means to control the outcome. Maybe that's you today. Maybe, you, maybe, maybe the church and following Jesus has just become a, a means to try to control your life. Like now I'm just showing up, trying to do my deal, trying to, trying to you know, pay the tithe, do what I got to do, show up to church, and everything's going to work out good for me. Remember when I, I read earlier that like good things happen to bed? Like that was straight from Ecclesiastes. Like the truth is that's just not the story of mankind. You can come here and play the church thing all you want and still end up in ruin. That's just the world that we live in. And in these instances, it's difficult to embrace God. And for us who, who are maybe more intellectually prone, it's hard for us to come to, to, to strong arguments about God. Maybe you think that God is either absent in your suffering or the cause of it together. And while I'll just simply say that that's not true at all, right? Even if God is causing you pain, I don't actually think that he's causing you suffering in that way because God is not the author of suffering. And sometimes the things that we call suffering are just simply pain. And pain is not always bad. Yesterday, I was trying to get out, man. We were deep. Well, I'm telling you, we were deep, and tide was super high, and it was like against the rocks, and we had to paddle, like, I don't know, Vince, like maybe like two football fields. I mean, it was far paddle against the current, and Vince is just paddling, and I'm sitting there dying, like, dude. And, I'm t and, I'm, and it's causing me pain. My arms were hurting. And I get out, and my son's like, why'd you stop paddling? <laughs> Be quiet. <laughs> But pain isn't always bad. Pain isn't always suffering. But it's difficult to engage God in these times, right? I think one of the main reasons it's difficult for us to embrace God is because we don't know how to make sense of the pain and or suffering that we experience. And guess what? Those are simply tensions that no matter how much you try, you're just going to have to engage. Soon after his confession, Jesus would be crucified. And Peter and the disciples would have to face these tensions again. But Peter knew what he saw. And he would embrace Jesus. 
nevertheless. What did Peter see? Peter saw the compassion of Jesus towards the suffering. Friends, if you are suffering today, do you know that Jesus has compassion for you? Jesus, or Peter saw the, the power of Jesus over everything. I don't care how messed up, broken, beat up your life is. Jesus has power over everything. He could walk on water. He could speak to the wind. And he rose around. I mean, he had power over death. Like, he has power over everything. Like, there is, like, friends, we want you to know the limitless God. While you are limited, our God is limitless. Peter saw the limitless God in action, and he believed. Peter saw the righteousness of Jesus in the face of all things. In the midst of injustice, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of the systemic decay of society, he saw Jesus come onto the scene as liberator and king. And he saw the love of Jesus in the crucifixion. That he loved us so much that he was willing to even be murdered on our behalf. And that's, 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 that's not just some simple legal contractual thing. While it does have legal ramifications, it is so profound. It will take the rest of our life to understand that. And then you know what else Peter saw? He saw the certainty of Jesus in the resurrection. And the truth is that if you place your hope in Jesus and if you embrace Jesus, he is certain to come through for you. Peter knew that Jesus was the king of the universe and worthy of all of our loyalty and that there was no one or nothing else that was worthy of loyalty. And although Peter's life was not without trial, Peter learned that the chisel in the hands of God is an instrument of molding and mercy, and he learned to embrace God. That's why it's important for us to face God before we embrace him. And as we close, brothers and sisters, Jesus did not leave us without direction here. In the following passages, Jesus gave us clear direction into how you embrace God. Consider the words of Jesus in chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, if you're here today and you want to follow after Jesus, if you're here today and you want to experience all the beauty of what King Jesus has to give you, if you want the hope that Peter had, if you want the confidence that Peter had, if you want the, the, the assured life that, that, I mean, if you want what Peter had, if anyone wants to follow me, this is what it means to embrace Jesus. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give 
in exchange for his life. Brothers and sisters, the indication here is that Jesus must be your king. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. As we said earlier, even the demons do that. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must come after him and take up your cross as well. And the cross in this passage is a symbol of self-denial and self-sacrifice. But it's not a symbol of defeat. In fact, Jesus tells us in the passage that there is tremendous benefit in laying down your crown. There is life and hope. Life and hope that Peter found. There's no benefit in holding on to control. There is no benefit to try to, 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 to directing your life in the direction that you think it should go. There is tremendous benefit when you engage the king and say, Jesus, it is all yours. When you face God and embrace God, as you take on the life of Christ and say, Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Have you embraced God today?